Okay, in this episode, I'm going to be talking about the lecture from May 21st. So starting off with the immune response, um, the first concept is antigen. So this is basically any molecule that's foreign to the host. So it could include bacteria, a virus, fungus, protozoa, parasites, pollen, toxins, venom, and also transplanted organs. So these are going to be recognized by immune cells, including neutrophils, lymphocytes, and macrophages. So the origin of immune cells, um, we have two cell, um, cell lines that come from a pluripotent stem cell. So those will differentiate into the lymphoid stem cell, which has a lymphoid cell line, and also myeloid stem cells, which have a myeloid cell line. So the lymphoid stem cells become both T cells and B cells. So in T cells, we have the CD4, CD8, and natural killer cells, and the B cells can also become plasma cells. On the myeloid cell line, we have a whole lot more. So we're going to have monocytes, granulocytes that will differentiate further into eosinophils, neutrophils, and basophils. Also megakaryocytes, which become platelets, and erythrocytes, which will become reticulocytes, which are immature red blood cells, and then erythrocytes. So the first aspect of this is innate immunity. So innate immunity is present at birth and it attacks non-self pathogens. The really key distinguishing factor is that innate immunity does not distinguish among different cell types. So it affects everything kind of equally. So there are four types of mechanisms in innate immunity. We have epithelial barriers. Um, this is like proteins and enzymes that would prevent the colonization of bacteria phagocytic cells, um, like neutrophils and macrophages, killer cells, including dendritic and natural killer cells, and plasma proteins, which is also the complement cascade. So starting out with the cells of innate immunity, we have neutrophils. These are the first responders, so they're going to be the first ones to um, interact with these foreign substances. So they're going to recognize the cytokines from damaged tissue and then marginate and transmigrate into the tissue. And we'll analyze a little more about what that means later. Neutrophils also release proteases. So they're breaking down proteins with these proteolytic enzymes. Um, they're additionally phagocytic, so they're going to engulf invaders. And finally, they release cytokines to coordinate immune and inflammatory response. So neutrophils are first responders. They're recognizing the cytokines, which is how they find damaged tissue. And they're releasing proteases, engulfing invaders, and releasing cytokines. So margination and transmigration is how white blood cells are going to enter the tissue. So typically they are traveling in the middle of the bloodstream because they're relatively large. When they are responding to a cytokine, like we said, that's how they're called to enter tissue, they're going to marginate and accumulate at the cell wall. So they're going to kind of start rolling along the cell wall. They'll be, um, I believe the... Okay, yep, so the endothelial cell is expressing selectins while the white blood cell re um, releases integrins, and those are going to allow them to roll along the wall and adhere to the wall of the, the vessel. They'll then transmigrate through the wall before calling other cells via chemotaxis and phagocytizing the bacteria. So macrophages can be either fixed or migratory. So they could either stay in an organ, like for example in the liver, or they could uh, remain in the bloodstream and go where they're needed. So um, since they are phagocytic, they're going to be engulfing invaders, and they also contain toxins to kill them. So. We have neutrophils, which are the first on the scene. Macrophages are also really important. They play a role in active adaptive immunity as well as antigen-presenting cells. Um, but generally speaking, they're going to engulf the invaders, enhance the inflammatory response by releasing cytokines, including tumor necrosis factor alpha and interleukin. They're also active in healing. Another cell type are dendritic cells in innate immunity. They are going to engulf the invader to show to lymphocytes, so they are antigen presenting cells, APCs. We also have natural killer cells, which are actually undifferentiated lymphocytes from the T cell line. Um, they're going to recognize cancer cells, virally infected cells, and intracellular microbes, so automatically killing foreign cells. 
We also have that complement cascade. So this is basically a series of 20 plasma proteins that promote and enhance immune and inflammatory functions. And it's basically a series of events that enhance immune action after being activated by an antigen or the metabolic functions of bacteria. So the process starts with opsonization by the complement proteins in which they're coding bacteria and promoting the attachment of microorganisms to a phagocyte. So they're kind of tagging the bacteria and coding it to indicate that it's an invader. They also perform chemotaxis in which they release cytokines to attract immune and inflammatory cells. Other things they do, um, phagocytize, increase vascular dilation, increase vascular permeability, and they finally, in this complement cascade of all of these 20 plasma proteins, it ends in the cell membrane attack complex. So the membrane attacks complex consists of complement proteins forming a ring, um, and then they will kind of bind into the cell wall of either a foreign cell or um, a self cell that we don't want anymore. And they're going to create an osmotic force within the bacteria or other cell to pull water and sodium in, which we'll call lysis. So it results in lysis of either foreign cells or unwanted current cells. So just a review of innate immunity, you're born with it, it doesn't require prior exposure, it affects like all invaders equally, and it involves epithelial barriers, phagocytosis, complement proteins in the cascade, and also natural killer cells. Now moving on to adaptive or acquired immunity. This consists of specific cells attacking, attacking specific antigens, and this develops after exposure to the antigen. There are two types of this. We have humoral immunity in which antibody proteins in the blood attack the specific antigen and also cell-mediated immunity where phagocytic cells attack the specific antigen and we also have T lymphocytes involved. So a review of lymphocyte development, they all start with stem cells and they're going to be part of that lymphoid um, stem cell line. We'll have B cells that mature in the bone marrow and T cells that mature in the thymus. They'll then move to the lymph and wait for an antigen-presenting cell to activate them. We have certain areas of the body called lymph nodes where T and B cells wait for passing antigens. And the di differentiating thing about lymph nodes is that it's a lymph tissue encapsulated and it has its own distinguished blood supply. Whereas lymph tissue can just kind of exist throughout the body like the um, payer patches, I'm not sure. So within the lymph system, we have immune cells looking for invaders. So they are able to recognize antigens because these antigens lack the MHC or the major histocompatibility complex. This is found on chromosome six. Um, there are a couple types. So this is identifying you as yourself. So the MHC1 is found on all cells except red blood cells and the MHC2 is found on antigen presenting cells. So any cell that's lacking your unique major histocompatibility complex is going to be identified as an antigen and activate the immune system. So T lymphocytes, um, they differentiate further. So we have the CD4s, which are formerly known as the, the helper cells. So these are the master regulators of the immune system. We also have CD8, which are cytotoxic cells, and these attach to marked invaders to kill them and kill infected cells. Finally, natural killer cells are just going to be the undifferentiated cell. So the process starts with antigen-presenting cells that are going to tell the immune system what to attack. So these include macrophages, dendritic cells, and B cells. They are going to engulf the invader and then who has the non-self marker, so they won't have the MHC. And then they will demonstrate the non-self marker. So they're going to be affixing this to our, to their um, kind of cell, cell membrane to show it off and present it to the CD4. So when the APC engulfs this antigen, takes the process part of it, attaches it to a major histocompatibility complex and places it on the cell surface, this will activate the CD4 cell. The CD4 cells at this point, also known as the helper T cells, are going to release cytokines, which are just messengers. So an example of this would be interleukin, which controls both types of immune response, both innate and acquired. So in the innate 
um, immune system interleukin is going to be activating neutrophils, macrophages, natural killer cells, etc. In an acquired immunity, it's going to call B cells to become either plasma or memory cells and call CD8s, the cytotoxic cells, to kill invaders. Um, the CD4s also release other inflammatory mediators and white blood cell growth factors. So now we have the CD8 T cell, the cytotoxic T cell, activated by the CD4 to kill its invader. So the CD4 is going to release cytokines to activate this cell and targets the cell for death. It also activates B lymphocytes. B lymphocytes now, now that they're activated by the CD4, they have the ability to either become plasma cells, which will create antibodies to attach to the antigen to mark and destroy it, or memory B cells. So the memory B cells can, are basically just going to circulate and monitor for the antigen. So looking at the antigen and exactly what the B cells monitor for, um, each antigen has a couple of different um, antigen binding sites. So those are going to be known as its epitopes. And so specific areas, these are specific areas on the cell surface that are characteristic for that antigen alone. So it's highly specific. And one antigen can contain multiple epitopes. So antibodies are created for each individual epitope by plasma cells. Since these antibodies are created to match these exact identifying characteristics on the antigen cell membrane, these characteristics, which we know are called epitopes, um, allow the B cells to become immunocompetent. So they have um, that membrane-bound immunoglobulins to recognize antigens that fix, fit the epitope. So this also influences antibody structure. So we have a few components of antibodies. We have the FC, which is the constant fraction. This is located on the heavy chain, so it's kind of the base of that Y shape of the antibody. And this is going to be the same on all antibodies. It is not specific to an antigen. On the other hand, we have the FAB, which is the antibody fraction, and these are located on the upper aspects of the Y shape. So these will contain different antigen binding sites, which are specific to each antigen. And it's good to know that antibodies are basically just exact copies of the membrane-bound immunoglobulin of the original B cell after it becomes immunocompetent. So there are a bunch of different types of immunoglobulins. So it's not necessarily important to memorize them, but you should understand that they circulate for different reasons. So we have IgG, which is circulating in body fluids and attacking antigens. If you have IgG, that means you have had this infection previously. So you've already experienced it. And you can think of it as G is gone. So that's indicating a prior infection. We also have IgM, which means you have a current infection. They're circulating in the body fluids as well, and they have five units that pull antigens together into clumps, also known as agglutination. So if you think of IgM, meaning am sick, so that's a current infection. We also have IgA, which are found in secretions on mucous membranes and prevent antigens from entering the body. IgD, which are found on the surface of B cells and act as an antigen receptor. And IgE, which are found on mast cells and tissues and start inflammation. So looking at the primary immune response after exposure to an antigen, so kind of going through this process, we have a macrophage that engulfs the antigen and then presents it to the CD4 cell. The CD4 cell is going to subsequently activate B cells, which produce antibodies. Over a period of two to three weeks, the plasma antibody levels are going to rise as more and more B cells become immunocompetent and are able to produce these antibodies. So this is a good thing to think about in the context of a vaccination. It would produce an immune response or a first, first exposure illness. So it takes two to three weeks to make those antibodies present in the blood. A secondary immune response is going to be a secondary exposure to it. So if you think of the first, the primaries being a vaccination, this would be something like a booster shot. So the B memory cells, since they're, they've been just like wandering the body looking for this particular antigen that they are immunocompetent for. So they're going to be able to, these B memory cells are going to be able to respond to the antigen immediately. They do not require CD4s or those helper, helper T cells to mediate it. So the plasma antibody levels are going to rise within days. So it's a much more rapid response if you think about two to three weeks for primary and days, mere days for the second exposure. 
the um, antibody numbers are also going to last longer, so quicker and last longer. So if we're looking just at this once again, because it's a really important concept, we have the primary exposure. So macrophage will engulf the antigen, present it to the CD4 cell. The CD4 cell will activate the B cells. B cells will produce antibodies, and the plasma antibody levels will rise over two to three weeks. After that, we'll have um, a big drop in the volume of antibodies in the cell because you know there's no active infection at that point. So we'll just have memory B cells kind of hanging out, waiting for the second coming of the antigen. So when the antigen does appear a second time, the memory B cells are going to immediately be activated to produce plasma cells to produce antibodies specific to that since they're already immunocompetent. So it's faster, it lasts longer, and it produces way more antibodies in the first response. So putting it all together once more, antigen presenting cells present to present the antigen to the CD4, CD4 activated by recognition of the antigen, produce cytokines to activate B cells to become memory cells and produce antibodies. At the same time, CD4 is also activating other CD8 cells and actually killing the antigen. Okay, so now that we know how the immune function the immune system functions when it's functioning correctly, we also have to know about alterations in the immune response. So there are a couple types of immune disorders. We have primary, which are congenital or a genetic defect of B or T cell action, and also secondary, which develop later in life in response to another disease process. So this could be like Hodgkin's lymphoma or viral infections. One of the common types of this um, immune disorder is hypersensitivity, which is excessive and or inappropriate activation of the immune response. So it effectively results in the body being damaged by the immune response rather than the antigen itself. And we have four types of this, which I'll delve into all of them, but we have type 1, allergic or anaphylactic, um, type 2, antibody mediated, type 3, immune complex mediated, and type 4, which is T cell mediated. So type 1 hypersensitivities are mediated by IgE. So these are commonly called allergic reactions. They can be local, atopic, or systemic anaphylactic reactions. They could also be acquired or genetic. So they range from things that are kind of annoying, like rhinitis, which is hay fever, so maybe if you get allergies in the spring, to eczema, to really debilitating um, hypersensitivity, like bronchial asthma or even life-threatening, such as anaphylaxis. So this occurs, we kind of talked about this earlier in the lecture, but since it's IgE-mediated, um, we have the first exposure to antigen, to the antigen, which prompts the production of IgE. IgE will then attach to the mast cell, so that's after the first exposure. When you have a second exposure and the antigen returns to the body, the antigen is going to bind to the IgE, which is located on the mast cell, and cause degranulation. So when the mast cell degranulates, we have a histamine reaction. So we're going to have vasodilation, which will drop blood pressure in a major way. So ideally, in a like, perfect situation, this would be a positive thing. For example, if you had um, a bee sting, it would dilute the bee venom by increasing blood flow to the site of the sting. Um, but in type 1 hypersensitivity, this has a tremendous massive effect. We also have bronchoconstriction, which, once again, would be protective if you're doing something like accidentally inhaling noxious stimuli. But in um, this hypersensitivity, the bronchoconstriction is once again profound and inappropriate, so it can cause life-threatening shortness of breath. We also have increased capillary permeability and vascular permeability, which in theory would allow plasma proteins to enter the interstitial space, but when it's systemic in this hypersensitivity, it leads to widespread edema and angioedema. We also have itching or pruritus and mucus production, along with the release of other inflammatory mediators. So the kind of time frame for this, within five to 30 minutes of that exposure, you'll have the release of histamine and kinins that are going to cause, once again, that vasodilation leading to decreased blood pressure, bronchoconstriction leading to shortness of breath, and vascular permeability leading to edema. Eight hours to several days later, um, the mast cell membranes will have released arachidonic acid, which will lead to leukotrienes and prostaglandins. 
um, down the Cox pathway. So that'll continue vasodilation, vascular permeability, and bronchoconstriction. In anaphylaxis, you can also have leukotrienes causing a delayed reaction. And we also have cytokines, um, leukotaxis, which kind of call the neutrophils and eosinophils to the area. And in anaphylaxis itself, it's going to be that systemic response to the inflammatory mediators that are released in type 1 hypersensitivity. So these will be like the histamine, kinins, leukotrienes, and prostaglandins that cause vasodilation and result in anaphylaxis. Additionally, kinins, leukotrienes, and prostaglandins can also all cause inappropriate excessive bronchoconstriction and vasodilation. So after type 1, we also have types 2, 3, and 4, and these are going to be autoimmune and basically a failure to recognize yourself. So as we talked about earlier, we have that major histocompatibility complex that's present on the surfaces of all of our cells, and these disorders will occur when the body does not recognize them. So it's going to cause the immune system to attack and destroy your own body tissue and cause anti-tissue antibodies to appear in your blood. So once again, a review on that major histocompatibility complex, MHC, it's the self-identifier that's found on all cells to protect yourself. It's found on chromosome 6. So generally in autoimmune disorders, um, the major histocompatibility complex is defective. So maybe the sequence of amino acids is different. And this is going to be really clinically relevant, especially during things like organ transplants. So in type 2 hypersensitivity, it's an antibody-mediated hypersensitivity, so it's going to be cytotoxic. So in this one, the body produces antibodies, specifically IgM and IgG, against your own cells or your own receptors on your cells. So the antibodies are going to attach and block normal cell function. You could also have the complement cascade associated with this pro um, process with the membrane attack complex, which will destroy cells. So two examples of this include transfusion reactions and myasthenia gravis. So we have cytotoxicity. Like we said, type 2 hypersensitivity is cytotoxic. This happens in two ways. We have the complement proteins, like we said. So antibodies are going to opsonize the cell. So basically identify it as non-self and allow... Um, the FC portion of the antibody to fit on. This also results in the complement cascade and the formation of the membrane attack complex causing the lysis of your own human cell, not an engine, not a pathogen, nothing like that. You also have natural killer cells, which will recognize the um, FC portion of the antibody and themselves can cause cell lysis. So cytotoxicity and type 2 hypersensitivity, we have complement proteins and natural killer cells. So let's say in a blood transfusion, for example, if a person gets blood that isn't compatible with their blood type, the body's going to mount an immune response to that blood. So the antigens on the blood are what determine blood type. So if you have type A blood, you're going to have A antigens and B antibodies. If that person received B blood, the antibodies would attack it, causing that cell lysis from the natural killer cells. Um, and activating complements that form the membrane attack complex and cause cell lysis and white blood cells would also engulf the cell. So that was cytotoxic. We also have non-cytotoxic, myasthenia gravis. So this is when those antibodies that are formed to your own self respond to the acetylcholine receptors on your um, motor end plate postsynaptic folds. So the antibodies are going to um, occupy these receptors on the motor endplates of the cell. Since they're occupying the acetylcholine ACH receptors on the cell, um, acetylcholine is going to be unable to bind to cells. So patients will develop weakness and the muscles will atrophy since they aren't being stimulated. Moving on to type 3 hypersensitivity, this involves an antigen antibody complex. So circulating immune complexes are effectively formed in the blood from antigens and antibodies that bind together. They'll be deposited in tissue and activate the complement cascade, inflammatory response with neutrophils, and also tissue damage. 
So this is seen in glomerulonephritis and also systematic lupus erythematosus, SLE, also known as just lupus. So this happens when immunoglobulins bind with antigens to form immune complexes. These immune complexes are then deposited into tissue and activate complement, causing tissue damage. through both that complement activation and white blood cells. So in systematic lupus erythematosus, um, this can happen in a widespread and they can really lodge anywhere. So some specific things you'll see as a result of these membrane, not membrane, excuse me, as a result of these immune complexes could be pleural effusions, heart problems, lupus nephritis, arthritis, Raynaud's phenomenon, um, and also butterfly rash, but it really varies widely based on the individual. And lastly, we have type 4 hypersensitivity. So this is going to be delayed type hypersensitivity, and it's cell-mediated cytotoxicity. So we have abnormally sensitized T cells that attack tissue antigens. This can often occur after a viral illness. Um, it is delayed, so you could see this um, a period after other reactions, hypersensitivity reactions would occur. So this includes things like allergic contact dermatitis, such as a latex, quote-unquote, allergy, um, reactions to poison ivy, and also hypersensitivity pneumonitis, which comes from inhaled allergens. So this is when, once again, the T cells become sensitized to allergens and mount an inappropriate response. So the antigen-presenting cell is going to recognize the antigen, present it to the CD4, which will then activate and release cytokines, which cause this delayed hypersensitivity response by activating CD8 cells, which are kind of that cytotoxic aspect. Okay, and just a review of those four types again. Um, we have type 1, which is IgE, acting against an antigen through that mast cell degranulation. Um, we have type two, which is IgG and IgM acting against yourself. We have type three, which involves the antigen antibody complex that gets deposited into tissue. And type four, in which it's cell mediated, so there are no antibodies, just T cells that become abnormally sensitive to various allergens. So now some transplantation immunopathology. So transplantation is taking cells, tissue, or organs in a graft from one individual, the donor, and placing them in another individual, the receptor or the host. So once again, we have that major histocompatibility complex that contains the human leukocyte antigen, HLA. So these are cell surface antigens that determine if the tissue of the transplanted organ is recognized as foreign. So once again, MHC is also known as the HLA, human leukocyte antigen in humans. So there are a few different categories of transplanted tissue. Um, we could have autologous in which the donor recipient are the same person. So this could be if someone got a really severe burn on their abdomen or something, you could be transplanting skin maybe from their leg to their abdomen. You also have um, synjaic in which the donor recipient are identical twins. So syn, I think together or like we also have allogenic, allogenic, in which the donor and recipient are related or unrelated, but they share similar HLA types. So we can have solid organ graft rejection, and there are a few different kinds. It could be hyperacute, in which it occurs immediately after transplant, where the circulating antibodies are going to immediately react with that graft. So it's treated by just removing the organ immediately. We also have acute, which could occur months after transplant, or years after immune suppression is terminated. This re results in the generation of T cells and antibodies that act against the graft. Finally, we have chronic graft rejection, which occurs over a long period of time. Effectively, the blood vessels in the graft become fibrous and gradually damaged due to that fibrosis and scar tissue. We can also have stem cell transplantation in which bone marrow cells of the host are going to be destroyed by myeloblative doses of chemotherapy. So you're basically getting rid of all of the um, malignant or problematic host bone marrow cells. 
Then you have stem cell transplantation from an unaffected donor. And these stem cells are going to be expected to repopulate the bone marrow and reestablish hematopoiesis. So one reaction that you can see with this is graft versus host. This occurs most often after allogenic bone marrow transplants in which T cells and natural killer cells react with the transplant. So donated cells are going to review the recipient's body as foreign. So the donated cells attack the recipient's body. It typically develops days to weeks after the transplant and the most affected organ is the skin. So you'll see a pruritic maculopapular rash that generally begins on the palms and soles and extends to the entire body with subsequent desquamation. So basically the epithelial layer is just going to peel off. Can also affect um, other organs like liver and GI. So that is graft versus host disease. Okay, another section of this is going to be human immunodeficiency virus, otherwise known as HIV. So immunodeficiency, we can have a couple different types. We have primary, which is congenital, inherited. So that could be deficiencies in B cells, T cells, um, and immunoglobulins, or also combined immunodeficiency. Additionally, there's acquired, like AIDS, which is acquired immunodeficiency syndromes caused by human immunodeficiency virus. So this is the most common type of acquired immunodeficiencies. So HIV is going to be transmitted by bodily fluids, known as sexual contact, breast milk, blood-to-blood -blood contact, which could be facilitated by contaminated needles, transfusions, transplants, or even during pregnancy or birth. So worldwide, there's a really large population living with it. Um, and a lot of the, the majority of the global new HIV infections are going to be found in sub-Saharan Africa. Although cases are growing profoundly in Eastern Europe and Central Asia too. So how HIV affects the body, the virus is going to attach to the CD4 receptors and enter the cell. And since we know that the CD4, or also known as those helper T cells, are the master controller of the immune system, it has a huge effect since this HIV is taking over its DNA for its own use. The HIV is going to use reverse transcriptase to convert RNA to DNA, and new DNA is going to produce new virons, and those virons are going to be released. So it's using them, it's using the cell to produce new virons, and then they're going to fill the cell, destroy the cell, and release to infect more cells. So the course of the HIV infection, it starts with a primary infection phase. So you're going to have signs of a systemic infection that occur within four weeks of exposure and last about seven to 10 days. These symptoms include fever, sore throat, um, myalgias, and GI problems. So they're kind of general, nonspecific. If someone's diagnosed at this time, it's going to reduce the number of long-living infected cells um, and maintain homogeneous viral populations since um, the cells going to and the viruses are going to mutate the longer they're in the body. We then have seroconversion in which the immune system responds and antibodies against HIV appear. So that's one to six months after diagnosis. So basically, before that period, before seroconversion occurs, someone could test negative regardless of whether or not they're infected. So after we have that primary infection phase with the systemic infection and the seroconversion, we next have a latent period. So this is when the virus is going to be replicating and starts affecting CD4 cells on a really large scale. So their count is going to drop. So you're going to see fewer and fewer CD4 cells as time progresses. This could last 10 to 11 years or even longer. Um, and at this point, the patient won't be having symptoms, but they will absolutely be infected. So near the end of the latent period, you're going to have the onset of overt AIDS, acute acquired immunodeficiency syndrome. And this occurs when the CD4 cell count gets below 200 cells per microliter. I'm not really sure, but the CD4 cell count drops below 200. So this is the point at which the immune system really can't function and the person's going to start developing opportunistic infections. So there are a lot of illnesses that define AIDS, and this is how it was kind of first noticed back when they discovered AIDS. So some of the opportunistic, infec 
infections, these are things that you wouldn't see in a healthy person. If you have a strong immune system or even an average immune system, you're going to be able to fight them off. So there are things like in the respiratory system, um, pneumocystis carini, the GI tract, cryptosporidiosis, and salmonella. In the nervous system, cytomegalovirus, and also toxoplasmosis. Um, people develop the AIDS dementia complex. You could have malignancies like Kaposi's sarcoma and lymphoma, and also wasting syndrome, which is defined as a reduction in 10% of your baseline body weight with diarrhea. So looking at the course of the HIV viral load, with primary infection, you have those mono-like symptoms, and you're going to have increases in viral replication and a progressive decrease in CD4 count. After a few weeks, the immune system is going to control replication, so you won't have that continuing increase in viral load. Then you have latency, which is defined by decreasing viral load, but an increase in CD4 counts. And then over time, you will have the decrease in CD4 count below 200. And the immune system is not able to control the virus. So viral load will increase, opportunistic infections will occur, and you will also have overt AIDS. So at some point in the latency, you're going to have decreasing CD4 counts. It might, and that might increase a little bit after the immune system originally controls the virus, but throughout latency, you will have decreasing CD4 counts. So drugs for HIV, um, there are a couple different types. We classify these antivirals by the way they stop replication. So the first one's just stop viral replication straight off. So they're going to be reverse transcriptase inhibitors or integrase inhibitors. We also have antivirals that prevent viral entry into the cell. So these are called considered HIV fusion inhibitors or CCR5 antagonists. We also have drugs that prevent the final maturation and release. So these would be protease inhibitors, and these are the most effective and have also have the most side effects, unfortunately. So the important thing to remember about drugs for HIV, um, combination therapy decreases resistance. So you're going to be using a lot of drugs together. It's not just going to be one. It's a pretty complicated med regimen, but newer meds do have fewer side effects, so that's a positive. And so managing AIDS, um, when we're looking at viral load, which is the kind of plasma HIV RNA, it's measured in the number of viruses per milliliter, and you want it below 500. So you want a viral load below 500, but ideally undetectable. When you're looking at your CD4, which is type of, type of that T-cell count, you want it below 500, or above 500, excuse me. So we want viral load below 500, CD4 above 500. And below 200, you're going to start seeing severe symptoms and opportunistic infections. And adherence and compliance to this regimen is really complex and difficult um, for a number of reasons. The treatment is very complex. You're going to be taking numerous drugs several times a day. It's not easy to keep track of. There are also pretty significant adverse effects of the drugs and drug interactions, and it's expensive as well. There's a high cost. So to review, when we're managing AIDS, we want viral load below 500 and, T and CD4 counts above 500. Okay, so the last part of this lecture is all about drugs that affect immunity. So as we know, we have the major histocompatibility complex, which is found on chromosome 6 and known as HLA in humans. So that's going to be found on all cells of the individual except for red blood cells. And it acts as a self-identifier to protect your own cells from your immune system. They can also be diverse. The sequence of amino acids differs between people, and is, this is very clinically relevant during things like organ transplantation. So as we know in type 1 hypersensitivities, um, you have that primary exposure to the antigen that results in the production of IgE antibodies. Um, these then attach to a mast cell, and when you have a ex second exposure to that antigen, it's going to attach to the IgE that's binded onto the mast cell and cause degranulation. So this mast cell is being sensitized to allergens by antibodies from the B cells.
So after this occurs, we're going to have histamine release, which is going to cause vasodilation and bronchoconstriction. Um, we'll also see from this mast cell response cytokines and chemotactic factors that begin the inflammatory process. And we'll also activate um, phospholipase A2, which will um, start with platelet um, activating factor to prevent bleeding. Um, it'll also convert into arachidonic acid, which can either go down the Cox pathway to produce prostaglandins that cause vasodilation, pain, and increased temperature in thromboxane A2, or also down the lipooxygenase pathway in which the leukotrienes prolong the process. They also cause, we also see profound um, hypotension and bronchoconstriction with that. So the treatments for this, we have for hype 1 typer sensitivities, we have epinephrine, which is going to cause vasoconstriction and bronchodilation, so countering the effects of histamine. Um, we also have antihistamines that are going to counter the histamine action, and cortisone is going to reduce the immune response. We also have immunosuppressants, and they have two principal applications. Treat immune diseases, including the four types of hypersensitivity reactions, and also prevent transplant organ rejection. Effective doses can cause an increased risk of infection and neoplasm since it is preventing full um, immune system function, and you're going to have to take these drugs for life, so the risk of infection and neoplasms is lifelong. So our first class of immunosuppressants are calcineurin inhibitors, which are the most effective immunosuppressants. Um, the prototype for this drug class is cyclosporin, also known as sand immune. So you kind of have the immune in there, which helps. So calcineurin is needed for um, interleukin-2 production. And interleukin-2 is needed for B and T cell proliferation. So by um, blocking calcineurin from um, interleukin-2 production, you're not going to have B and T cell proliferation, so the immune system is not going to be able to react. So this drug, cyclosporin, is used to prevent transplanted organ rejection and also for autoimmune diseases. A main feature is that it does not cause bone marrow suppression. So you're not going to see a decrease in red blood cells, white blood cells, or platelets. Um, some major side effects, you could see nephrotoxicity and infection. There's also a low risk of lymphomas unless combined with other immunosuppressants, which would increase that risk. So it's important to take some things into consideration. You want to make sure you draw trough levels for this to ensure that it's at therapeutic levels. Um, peak levels are less concerning. Um, when administered via IV, there's a really high risk for anaphylaxis, so that's something you want to most closely monitor for. Um, you can take it in PO form, either in tablet or liquid, but it, one, it tastes terrible, so they recommend that you use things like chocolate milk to kind of reduce the taste, and it also binds to plastic, so if you are giving it in liquid form, you need to use glass measuring containers. It is sensitive to light, so it's going to be in a darkened container, and you're going to want to make sure that in storage it is not in light areas. Um, things like grapefruit juice or even erythromycin and other drugs can increase levels and keto, ketoconazole is given specifically to increase levels without increasing the dosage. So that's an important thing to consider. If you see calcineurin and ketoconazole, it's, the goal is to increase it. Um, Anti-seizure medications can lower levels, so something important to consider in people with epilepsy or other seizure disorders. And when used in combination with NSAIDs, it increases the risk of kidney failure. So another example of this is tacrolimus or Prograf. This is used exclusively for organ rejection. It does work twice as well for rejection, but it has a much higher incidence of side effects, including nephrotoxicity, infections, malignancy, GI bleeds, and other things. And it's important to consider that some antibiotics in grapefruit juice can increase its levels. Next, we have the, the class of cytotoxic drugs. So these are going to kill T and B lymphocytes that are undergoing proliferation. So it kills all these cells that undergo proliferation, so that rapid division and rapid reproduction. So it will cause bone marrow depression. Cytotoxic drugs cause bone marrow depression. So this is going to lead to neutropenia and thrombocytopenia, so decreased platelets, decreased white blood cells, decreased neutrophils, all of that. 
You'll also have hair loss, GI disturbances, and fertility problems due to the, um, the killing of those rapidly proliferating cells. This one, due to that pretty significant side effect, is reserved for those who have not responded to safer immunosuppressants. So it's really a last resort since it has such high risks. Since the, these cytotoxic drugs are directly killing or inhibiting immune cell production, there's a high risk of infection here. Um, some different types, we have azathioprine, also known as imurin, cyclophosphamide cytoxin, this inhibits B and T cell production and also inhibits other cytokines. We also have mycophenolate mofetyl slash cellcept. Um, and this one is selective inhibition of B and T. So a little more detail about those. Imaran antagonizes purine metabolism. So it's inhibiting DNA and RNA synthesis, which influences cell-mediated immunity. Cytoxan um, results in the death of replicants rapidly replicating cells, and salicept, our last one, inhibits specific enzyme required for purine synthesis, so it once again suppresses B and T cells. Other cytotoxic drugs, we have methotrexate or rumatrex or trexol. Um, it's often combined with cyclosporine. Um, it suppresses T and B cells by interfering with, their, with folate metabolism. So this is primarily used for cancer, but you could also use it in small doses for inflammatory arthritis and other autoimmune disorders. Since it is in small doses, you're going to have fewer side effects. The thing to consider with this, since it does interfere with folate metabolism, you must provide folic acid supplements. It also causes the death of rap rapidly replicating cells, but it's highly effective. We also have antibodies that might be administered. So we have a couple types. We have polyclonal antibodies, and this is when the B cells recognize the antigen, become plasma cells, and make antibodies. And each B cell makes a slightly different type of antibody to bind to various sites on the antigen, also known as epitopes. So those are the ones that you are naturally making in your body, since the antibodies are existing for a massive variety of antigens in their epitopes. So normal in the body is polyclonal. We also have monoclonal antibodies in which a B cell is going to be merged with a myeloma cell and manipulated to produce specific identical antibodies. So we're able to control the cell type that these B cells and my myeloma cells produce and combine those two are called hybridomas. So we have our hybridomas making antibodies. And these antibodies can either degrade or could also cause hypersensitivity reactions in humans, although it's less common with technology. So the way these monoclonal antibodies are produced, a mouse is injected with a specific antigen, which stimulates the production of antibody targeted, antibodies targeted against antigen. The antibodies are then isolated in the spleen of mouse and fused together with tumor cells to form the hybridoma. This allows production of a large volume of identical antibodies. So a couple different brands of this we have, or types, excuse me, in this class um, of monoclonal antibodies. We have for organ rejection, um, muromonab, also known as CD3, which blocks T cell function directly. We have basiliximab or Simulect, which blocks interleukin-2, which is needed for T cell function. And they are all given IV, so it's important to watch for anaphylactic reactions. And just a note, whenever you see um, a generic name that ends in AB, AB, that stands, that means it's a monoclonal antibody. Finally, we have glucocorticoids like prednisone and cortisone. So glucocorticoids suppress lymphocyte pr proliferation, um, result in extravascular sequestration of lymphocytes in the location, and reduce the responsiveness of T lymphocytes. So they're given in relatively large doses, um, half a milligram to two milligrams per, per kilogram, um, and typically 500 to 1500 milligrams IV for acute episodes of rejection or flare to stop that immune response. So just a reminder of what cortisol does in the body, which is what glucocorticoids are mimicking. Um, it increases catabolism, so you're going to have increased plasma proteins, increased muscle breakdown, increased free fatty acids, increased um, suppression of immune and inflammatory systems, increasing the sympathetic nervous system response, and also increasing blood glucose. It also does additionally have those emotional and psychological factors.
Also notable, it has a large number of side effects as we've discussed before. Um, if you're taking it for one dose, there's a minimal concern of this, but long-term can have some really serious impacts. So you have risk of infection, endothelial loss, which leads to thin skin and fragile veins, um, fluid and electrolyte disturbances, fat redistribution that results in a buffalo hump. So um, like a deposit of fat kind of in the center um, upper area of your back, um, moon face, which is just increased fat and adipose tissue around your face that creates a very round appearance and also central obesity. So you're going to have a lot of adipose tissue on your abdomen. Um, also osteoporosis due to the loss of calcium. This can lead to fractures, um, muscle weakness and muscle loss, hyperglycemia and suppression of the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis and the iatrogenic adrenal insufficiency. So we've talked about this before um, with our major adrenal cortical hormones, but really quickly, we have this negative feedback loop. Um, the hypothalamus is going to detect um, a decreased level of glucocorticoids, prompting it to release corticotropin-releasing hormone, which impacts the anter anterior pituitary and prompts it to release adrenal corticotropic hormone which directly stimulates the adrenal cortex to grow and produce things like glucocorticoids, mineral corticoids, and sex hormones. So when you have high, it's a negative feedback loop. So when those levels are raised, it'll um, turn off the hypothalamus effectively and stop the production of glucocorticoids. So when you have high levels of um, these glucocorticoid drugs exogenously being administered in a medication, you're going to have high levels of glucocorticoids in your body. So the body and hypothalamus will perceive that you have adequate, adequate cortisol levels. So your hypothalamus will stop making corticotropin releasing hormone. Since the, um, that prompts the anterior pituitary to release ACTH, which stimulates cell action, um, without it, the adrenal cortex is going to atrophy because it's not stimulated and it loses the ability to produce cortisol. So severe adrenal insufficiency is actually life-threatening. So you usually have to take a glucocorticoid for life if that's the case. So a really important consideration there when we're looking at glucocorticoids like prednisone and cortisone. So the last one is ROGAM, also known as ROD. So this is a lymphocyte immune globulin that stops the formation of antibodies after exposure to ROD positive blood. So this is relevant when you have an Rh-negative mother with an Rh-positive fetus. So the mother is going to develop antibodies to the Rh-positive blood of the fetus at delivery. So this isn't really a problem if you only have one, since as we know, the immune system first has to form antibodies to... You have to have that first exposure to form antibodies effectively. So if the mom becomes pregnant again and she has another Rh-positive fetus, the fetus is going to be attacked by the mother's antibodies. So ROGAM presents, prevents this, and it's given at 28 weeks of gestation, and then again at 72 hours after delivery. And those are all our drugs for today.